Greetings, brothers, sisters, and siblings of all varieties. Welcome to Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden. No human being is fully rational. We all hold certain beliefs that could be considered esoteric or even outlandish. In this podcast, we ask the question, what are the roots of these superstitions and what do they have to say about us? Today is the second week of our astrology summer solstice takeover. Last week, we discussed how the conjunction of planets corresponds with real-world catastrophes. This week, we're diving into a superstition with subtler links to astrology. I'm talking about the belief that identical twins share not just DNA and facial features, but also a spiritual link that goes beyond what science can prove. The pinnacle of Gemini energy. To check out more of our summer solstice takeover, listen to Parcast Mythical Monsters, Superstitions, and Mythology feeds. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up, we'll learn whether twins really can read minds. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. If you were born between May 21st and June 20th, your sign is that of Gemini. This is the sign of the twins, which isn't to say that every Gemini is born a twin. Twins are far rarer than that. On average, a little over 3% of American childbirths result in twins. What the symbol of the twin means in astrology is that the personality of a Gemini is so expressive that they feel like two people, which reveals something interesting about how the world at large sees biological twins. Since the very beginning of recorded history, twins have been treated like a sort of mythical archetype or trope. Storytellers love to romanticize or spiritualize the idea of twins because of how strange they can seem. From Castor and Pollux in Greek mythology to the twin ghosts of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. So perhaps it's no wonder that superstition follows twins wherever they go. To quote a 1961 encyclopedia of superstitions, it is a very common belief that twins, especially identical twins, are united by so strong a bond of sympathy that each knows when danger or misfortune threatens the other, even when they are separated. In the same mysterious way, any special state of happiness or well-being in one of the pair is reflected in the feelings of the other. It is often said that if one twin dies, the other will not live long thereafter. For most of us, it's intriguing chilling even, to imagine life as one half of a set. Would we still feel like an individual if we were sharing our life with another person? And if such a connection is real, surely some enterprising individual would have found a way to exploit it. That's what today's story is about. 
Set in the near future, it's a tale of brotherly affection and government conspiracy. Step 1. Make contact. The tall man waited in a park, a reinforced briefcase clutched in his hands. He kept to the shadows, listening to the cars whirring overhead across Hudson Parkway. He wondered how many of them were self-driving. Thousands of lines of code keeping commuters flowing like blood through an artery. Everything in the modern world was fragile, and his own occupation was like balancing on a razor's edge. His eyes drifted down to a space beneath the parkway where an unmarked car was pulling to a stop. Several men in suits with earpieces stepped out, surveying the surroundings. The coast clear, they opened the passenger doors and outstepped Senator Charles McGrath, wearing a Yankees cap and sunglasses. When he was close, the tall man quipped, Perfect disguise for a Mets fan. The senator almost jumped at the voice, and several of the suits reached for their weapons. The tall man stepped out into the light, hands raised placatingly. Taiwo Falarin knew he cut a fairly imposing figure, six foot two with dark skin and a long overcoat. Dropping his native Nigerian accent had been a conscious choice so that he did not appear too threatening to people like McGrath. The senator's eyes went to the briefcase almost immediately. His prize. He took a step forward and Taiwo held up a hand. You know that's not how this works. Just testing you, said McGrath. A moment later, the guards produced their own briefcase. Payment. May I see it? He asked. Taiwo nodded. But of course. He opened his briefcase to reveal a beautiful oil painting. McGrath caught his breath. Shouldn't it still be in Paris? Taiwo grinned. As far as anyone knows, it still is. Step 2. Catch them off guard. Suddenly, the senator's cell phone rang. He picked it up and held it to his ear. Taiwo checked his watch. Right on time. On the other end of the line was his brother Kahinde, known simply as K to their business associates. The two were identical, born 13 minutes apart. Save for a scar just across Kahinde's left eyebrow, there was no visual difference between the two. And right now, Kay was convincing the senator that he'd been given a forgery and that his only option was to pay full price and ask no questions. It was a double bluff of sorts. McGrath would leave the exchange knowing he'd been duped, but with full confidence that justice would come for these thieves and his money would be returned. In short, the twins would let the senator's confidence cover their tracks for them. On a rooftop overlooking the park, Kahinde continued talking to the senator over the phone. We're building a case. Don't worry, senator. We'll be in touch. He hung up and peered through a pair of binoculars at the exchange down below. He'd never admit this aloud, but the forgery strategy always made him nervous. The mark could always call their bluff and then they'd have no choice but to run. But Kahinde and Taiwo Falarin had not become some of the world's best con artists by playing it safe. The briefcases changed hands, and Kay exhaled. Step 3. Disappear. His phone buzzed. It was his brother, letting him know they were clear. But he wasn't speaking English, or even the Yoruba they'd grown up with. Their words would seem like gibberish to any outside observer. He hung up and started packing up his gear into a duffel bag. Suddenly, he froze. 
His heart started pounding faster than ever before. He wasn't used to this feeling on a job. Something had gone wrong. Not wasting any time, he hoisted the duffel bag over his shoulder and vaulted onto the fire escape. He felt his wrists twinge in pain. Oh God, he thought. They have him. He reached the end of the fire escape and lowered the ladder. He clambered down to street level before turning a corner and facing several armed police officers. They held his brother in front of them, cuffs around his wrists. A nearby megaphone boomed. Mr. Falarin, do not attempt to resist. Kahinde swore under his breath. He looked to his left and to his right. No way he could escape without getting a bullet in his spine. He looked to his brother. Taiwo had a bloody nose and a black eye. He twitched his eyebrows and wrinkled his nose ever so slightly. Kehinde understood the code. Their move. He raised his arms in the air as slowly as possible. He didn't want to give the NYPD an excuse to shoot. A massive muscle from behind him wrenched his arms together and slammed him to the pavement. Kehinde managed to wheeze out the word, How? A gruff voice from behind him laughed darkly. <laughs> Tip off. If you see something, say something. Kehinde had been a captive before. He'd even been arrested once or twice, but he had never seen such a peculiar holding facility. It looked like a run-of-the-mill interrogation room, metal table bolted to the floor and everything, but the walls were painted in pastel pink, yellow, and robin's egg blue, almost like it had been redecorated for use as a kindergarten classroom. The strangest part of all was that they kept the two brothers together. Taiwo sat beside him, hands cuffed to the table. The two men shared a look, but no words. The room was certainly bugged. When the door opened, Kay expected a suit, some faceless goon who looked like Agent Smith from The Matrix, but instead there stood a woman in an indigo dress. An iridescent jewel hung from her neck and a clipboard was in her hands. The Falaran brothers at last, she said with a smile. It's wonderful to meet you both. My name is Luna Clementine. The brothers glanced at one another, then responded in unison, Lawyer. Luna Clementine pushed her glasses up along the bridge of her nose and took a shaky breath. Kay got the feeling that she was not a seasoned interrogator. Look, gentlemen, I'm sensing a lot of aggression coming from you both. Perhaps we should all take a moment to center ourselves. Take a deep breath, in and out. In and out. Taiwo laughed. <laughs> Center ourselves. Who are you people? CIA? FBI? IRS? Luna gave a gentle yet plastic smile. She stepped up to the table and set a piece of paper before each of them. This is an agreement to participate in a study. Contingent on this participation is a full pardon for any crimes you may have committed. You'll walk free. The brothers shared a look. It wasn't the first time they'd been approached to participate in a scientific study. As twins, their matching genomes made them extremely useful for all kinds of tests. One twin could serve as the experimental group, while the other served as the control group. And because their DNA was identical, you could trust that any responses or reactions were strictly due to environmental influence, meaning whatever pills you gave them. 
Kahinde and Taiwo had made a few bucks participating in such studies in the past, but had quickly gotten tired of being treated like lab rats. This, however, was the first time they had been asked to participate in a government study, and more importantly, the first time they'd been offered a pardon. Kay spoke for both of them. What kind of study? Scratch that. Why us? You're obviously after twins, but they can't be that hard to find. Luna was delighted to explain. You're correct in assuming that this project requires twins, and in fact, it is the very nature of the twin bond we are studying. Everyone knows that identical twins share a connection beyond that of regular siblings. But just what kind of connection? Is it merely an understanding born from being so similar genetically? Or is there something deeper going on? Something metaphysical? Kay rolled his eyes. You're talking about twin telepathy, mind reading. Is this how the government's burning our tax dollars these days, looking for magic? Luna didn't bat an eye. Of course, Hollywood and the tabloids love to play it up. I'm sure you've read about twins sharing thoughts, sharing pain and pleasure, knowing when their other half is in danger. But within every sensationalized story, there is a grain of truth. Not every set of twins has to exhibit signs of a telepathic link for it to exist, which is why the two of you are so special. She said the last parts as if it were obvious, but was surprised to receive blank looks from the brothers. Because you're Geminis, of course. According to our records, you both were born on June 5th, 13 minutes apart. You are twins born under the sign of the twins, and those are difficult to find, let me tell you. If the Bureau had just approved my request to contact the Olsen twins in the 2010s, well, our research would be much further along. But now that we have the two of you, we can finally observe unfiltered Gemini energy. Kay opened his mouth to reply, then stopped, then started again. Gem- I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be thick here. You want to study us to see if our zodiac sign has given us some kind of, what, twin superpower? Exactly, said Luna, obviously quite pleased that they were keeping up. We've been following your <clears throat> work for years now. No one could have pulled off such elaborate confidence schemes without some serious communication skills or something else. Perhaps a mental link that has been augmented by the sign of Gemini. Gemini energy meets twin telepathy. I admit it is only a hypothesis. It's possible that the two of you just know one another very, very well. Either way, don't you want to know the truth? Don't you want to know just how deep your connection goes? With that, Luna Clementine stood and left the room, letting her question hang in the air. Kahinde looked to his brother. He expected the same look of stubborn skepticism, but was shocked to see Taiwo eyeing the contract. He spoke in their shared language. Don't tell me you're actually thinking about signing. Taiwo sighed through his clenched teeth. The lady's batty, but what choice do we have? Either we sign and participate, or don't sign and go to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Kahinde could have argued. He could have needled his brother about the tacky Monopoly line, but he was right. It was here or prison. Besides, how dangerous could these quirky captors really be? The instant both their signatures were on paper, the doors burst open. 
This time, it was not another life coach who entered, but men in masks and navy blue security uniforms, the sort of people Kehinde had expected from the start. They unlocked Taiwo's handcuffs and dragged him roughly out of his chair. When Kehinde protested, speakers on the wall crackled to life. Luna's voice came through, sounding slightly regretful. I'm sorry for the roughness. You two have to be separated for the duration of the study, otherwise our data will be useless. The men pulled Taiwo through the door and out of sight. Even though they didn't touch Kehinde, the room vibrated before him. His head was heavy and he felt a weird sense of vertigo. It was like an out-of-body experience if his out-of-body self was getting dragged across a cold concrete floor. Taiwo felt the same until he reached the examination room and was strapped down to some kind of dentist chair. The place looked sterile, but was like no laboratory he'd ever seen. The walls a disconcerting shade of green. Taiwo struggled and protested, but he was still weak from his clash with the police. A voice tutted at him. It's miraculous what effects a single split zygote can have. Taiwo squinted to see a man approaching from the shadows. He had a strange, shuffling gait, like a human-sized wind-up toy. As he approached, Taiwo saw a strange glint from beneath the coat. The man's limbs were supported by a metal frame that creaked as he walked, and his face looked like it wouldn't be out of place on Mount Rushmore. This guy was old. The doctor stared at him for a moment, hazel eyes moving over him like a child inspecting his butterfly collection. The study of twins has been a fixture of science for generations. From the eugenicists of the 19th century to the 1960s and 90s. Perhaps you've heard of Peter Neubauer. The man separated twins at birth, placed them with different families. Neither the siblings nor the adoptive parents knew that they had twins. He wanted to find out what would happen if they were given different circumstances, different opportunities, different lives. It is one of the oldest questions science has. Are we creatures of nature or nurture? Unfortunately, he realized the larger scientific community would not look kindly upon his methods. He never published his findings, and they remain sealed in the Yale archives until 2065. Taiwo's eyes narrowed. You should have just waited another 30 years. You won't learn much from us. The doctor tutted again. <laughs> That's where you are mistaken, Mr. Falarin. I am told that you and your brother coordinated simultaneous robberies by the age of 12. As teenagers, you could communicate across miles without the use of a cell phone or radio. And I've even heard rumors that you've developed a secret language for just the two of you. Is this true? Taiwo didn't respond. He'd signed their paperwork, sure, but he wasn't about to start admitting to crimes in a facility that likely had recording devices in every room. He wondered if there was already a room of crypto-analysts trying to translate the brother's brief conversation from back in the holding cell. The doctor continued, You're very of me, I understand. 
This must all seem very frightening from your perspective, especially if you know your history. But I am no Nazi. Mengele targeted twins for torture and dissection at Auschwitz because the Nazis had a stake in eugenics. We, on the other hand, have no belief in superior or inferior genes. Our aim is to learn and benefit from each other. He listed examples of unexplained twin connections, like the Houghton twins, one of whom acted on instinct just in time to save her sister from drowning in the bathtub, or the mystery of doctors Stuart and Cyril Marcus, who lived parallel lives in the 1970s before both dying separate drug-related deaths. So many stories of twins whose connections seem to go beyond a simple bond. Taiwo rolled his eyes, which the doctor clearly noticed. He shook his head. Of course, this looks frivolous to someone in your position. You do not see the whole picture. But by the end of this experiment, you will. We will unlock a mystery that has existed since the dawn of time. The mystery of linked minds. Taiwo said, Sure, sure. But you people still haven't answered the first question my brother asked. If you want me to cooperate, at least tell me who you're working for. The doctor put on a pair of spectacles too small for his face. He said, without a hint of humor in his voice, Haven't you guessed by now? I thought Luna's Gemini speech was a dead giveaway for sure. We're the people the government trusts with unexplained phenomena. The Federal Bureau of Astrology. Coming up, the FBA conducts their experiment and the twins put their bond to the test. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland, where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico, where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer and travel to New Zealand where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. Taiwo knew twins were popular subjects for clinical experiments, but he had never been involved in a study quite like this before. The tests range from free association sketching to interrogations about their youth, which he did his best to avoid. They didn't need to hear their mother's story about how they'd seemed to communicate with surprising complexity at six months old, or how an intuitive sense of the other's minds made theft and pickpocketing almost second nature. The worst part of these tests came when he went to sleep 
and would receive electric shocks through his cot. From what he could gather, the ancient doctor was in charge of the experiment. His name was Werner, and every time he or Luna were in the same room, she deferred to him. When he was not there, she focused more on esoteric questions than physical tests, mostly about birth charts. Taiwo soon lost track of whether it was day or night. The tests became more and more taxing, and often he'd feel pain even when they were seemingly harmless. And in every waking moment, he searched for an opportunity to escape. Lying on the table, he turned Luna's words in his mind over and over again. Gemini energy. What did that even mean? He and Kay were very close, true. They had always been able to tell what one another was thinking. Sometimes they could even sense when the other was in danger. But that was just intuition, not telepathy. Or was it? How else could he explain the numerous times their connection had gotten them out of trouble? They'd started to rely on it without even discussing how it worked. When one of them was being hurt, the other just knew. That went beyond mere intuition, didn't it? Perhaps there was a way to find out. Taiwo took his index finger and tapped the base of his thumbnail right where the nail met his flesh. It hurt a little, but not too much. He then waited. Then he tapped again. Tap, tap, tap. Come on, Kehinde, he thought to himself. Nothing. He tried again. This time, he spelled out a message in Morse code. Do you hear me, K? Still nothing. Taiwo flopped down onto his exam table. You're being foolish, he thought. Gemini energy. You're just as crazy as that doctor. And then he felt it. A tiny pain in his other thumb. He closed his eyes and felt the taps in rhythmic succession. In Morse code, they said, I hear you, Ty. Are you ready to get out of here? Luna and Werner sat in an empty laboratory, which smelt of lavender and rubbing alcohol. The old man was just finishing reading through her monthly report. She tapped her clipboard nervously, waiting for him to say something. Werner cleared his throat. Removing his glasses, he said, <coughs> Well done, Miss Clementine. Though I can't help but notice you forgot to include my plans for the finale of our experiment. Luna's throat went dry. I thought those were still under review. The old man smiled condescendingly. They are, technically speaking, but I have seen little to convince me there's a better option. Remember the point of this operation, Clementine. Secret agents who can contact their superiors without compromising themselves. Unbreakable lines of communication in war zones. We cannot make use of a Gemini link without samples. Abundant samples. With that, Werner turned and limped out the door, leaving Luna alone. Her stomach felt hollow. He was a relic of a different time, but he was her boss. Both of them agreed that the applications of twin telepathy were endless, but to unlock the secret of this quirk, you had to look at the DNA of the subjects. Luna wanted to take just a few samples. Werner didn't see a reason to be so stingy. In his version of this experiment, neither subject made it out alive. Taiwo heard a buzz from outside his room. 
Recognizing the cue, he stood up and put his hands behind his back. The door slid open and footsteps approached. The scientists laid him out on his cot like they always did, but as he lay back, he sensed something different. A gloved hand examined his bloody thumbnail. Be careful biting your nails, said a familiar voice. Taiwo started. He looked up and saw a pair of eyes over the surgical mask wink at him. The orderly subtly pressed something into Taiwo's palm. As his captors left the room, Taiwo craned his neck and carefully opened his hand. In it was a post-it note with six numbers. His heart started beating rapidly in his chest. He barely paid attention to the day's test, until finally he was alone in the lab. Taiwo sat very, very still, listening intently, until he heard nothing from the hallway outside. He took a deep breath and approached the door. The keypad was smudged and faded, but definitely there. Cautiously, he pressed the numbers. The door clicked and then opened. Taiwo held his breath as he slipped out. The hallway was impressively sterile, with white walls and off-white floors. Taiwo looked around, anxious to see where his brother's cell was. All of a sudden, he heard footsteps headed his way. There was nowhere to hide. The only means of escape was a heavy-looking metal door with a keypad. The footsteps grew louder. With no other option, Taiwo punched the code into the keypad, dove into the room, and crashed into his brother. The twins fell to the floor, and when they got over their shock, laughed in surprise. Taiwo was about to ask how he'd managed to get out of his cell when he noticed that Luna was standing over them. His smile vanished, and he leaped to his feet, squaring off against her. Only Kahinde's hand stopped him. Luna, it seemed, wanted to get them out of there. We have to hurry, she said. Werner wants you on his autopsy table. Taiwo looked at Kahinde and they exchanged several phrases in a language that Luna didn't understand. Eventually, Kahinde turned back toward Luna. He said, Want to see our Gemini energy in action? The three crept down the corridor. Luna whispered, How many languages do you two speak? Kahinde shrugged, Just Yoruba, English, and Falarin. Taiwo abruptly made a hissing noise and two clicks. Kahinde immediately understood the code two guards around the corner. Luna went first. She walked confidently past the two armed men, then turned to ask a question. When they answered, they inadvertently turned their backs on the escaped prisoners. Gehinde slipped a taser from one of the guards' holsters and Taiwo grabbed the other's nightstick. On a silent signal, the men struck. Both guards fell to the ground, stunned. A moment later, the twins had them bound and gagged. Luna led the brothers through the facility, turning so many times they completely lost track of where they had gone. Finally, Luna said, We're almost out of the air sign wing. The control room is not far and there shouldn't be any guards. They reached a door and Luna swiped her ID. She let the twins go first. Taiwo kicked the door in and shouted, Evening, MIT postgrads! He brandished the nightstick like a baton. Everyone, hands away from your monitors, or my brother will have to electrocute you. The various technicians took the hint and quickly pressed themselves up against the wall. Luna went over to the main monitor and began frantically typing. An ancient voice spoke from the doorway. Stop that right now, my dear. The three of them whirled around and found themselves face to face with Werner 
an antique luger in his hand. He motioned at Kehinde with his pistol. Kehinde snarled. The doctor was out of taser range, but close enough that even he couldn't miss. K dropped his stun gun. Taiwo did the same with his baton. Verna smiled. Don't bother rushing me. I tripped the silent alarm ten minutes ago. The other scientists stood in the corner, transfixed at the scene before them. The doctor shook his head sadly. Our society has progressed so far. We know about how to treat cancer, how to sequence genes, how all of our tiny little pieces work. And yet, you think your lives are more important than the lab rats we sacrificed on the way to greatness? The Falaran brothers exchanged a look. Give it up, Werner, said Taiwo. The silent alarm's been disabled. Werner guffawed. Always a bluffer, Mr. Falaran. Who disables it then? Taiwo caught the slightest hint of motion out of the corner of his eye. He grinned. My brother. One of the scientists threw a switch. The lights went off. Luna threw herself to the floor as a series of chaotic noises rang out, the sounds of the other scientists booking it for the door. Metal screeching, chairs collapsing, a scream from one of the interns. Suddenly, the emergency power went on, and she saw Verna wrestling with two men. No, with three men. Kehinde broke free and grabbed the taser from the floor. He fired the electrodes right into Verna's chest. The old man seized, and the gun went off. Taiwo fell to the floor, clutching his side. The other two screamed in pain, and then it was quiet. The gun slid through Verna's limp fingers. Luna slowly rose to her feet, trying to make sense of everything she'd just seen. There are three of you? Taiwo half smiled, half winced. Oh, yeah, Luna, meet Ataoko. The third triplet, who looked identical to his brothers, held out his hand. Luna shook it, still in disbelief. You planned this all along? Taiwo coughed and laughed painfully. The other two brothers noticeably winced. Not a chance, he groaned. But that's Tao's job. Get us out of sticky situations. We're not out of it yet, remarked Kehinde. That shook Luna back into the present. She went for the keyboard and started typing furiously. With a final dramatic click, she stood back up. There, she said. Security protocols have been disabled on the elevator. You'll be free to go. Luna let them leave, rushing to the side of her superior, who was wavering in and out of consciousness. The three Falarin brothers piled into the elevator, relieved to finally be out of the facility. Taiwo sighed. Shame they impounded everything. When we get out, we'll have to start from scratch. Etaoko removed a flash drive from his pocket. Way ahead of you, brother. I cloned their hard drives. Thanks to all their research, it'll take them more than a few concerned citizens to nab us again. If we get away, that is, pointed out Kehinde. How many SWAT teams do you think are waiting for us up top? Five? Six? If it's less than seven, we're going back down and escaping all over again, joked Taiwo. They laughed, 
and then all cringed at the pain from Taiwo's wound. According to the government, the Falaran brothers were never held in a top-secret facility. They're still under maximum security in a New York state prison. But every now and again, some local newspaper will catch wind of a con that sounds just like their handiwork, before every mention of it is swiftly scrubbed from the records. Local legend has it that the Falaran triplets remain at large. The superstition of twin telepathy is difficult to discuss comprehensively because so much of the evidence for it is anecdotal. Maybe you've met a pair of twins who just knew when their other half was in trouble, or you've read about twins who died nearly simultaneously of entirely different causes. To an outsider, life as a twin seems uncanny. Imagining that two people can be so similar defies every notion we have about our own individuality. But here's the thing people don't consider. The twins might behave like one person because of nurture rather than nature. See, when two siblings are exactly the same age and raised in nearly identical environments, it stands to reason that they will become very similar people. One key element of this superstition that is not a myth is that of cryptophagia, the phenomena of twins creating a private, shared language. It's estimated that this occurs in around 40% of twins. Despite being a fairly common occurrence, historically, it has been regarded with a degree of suspicion. Perhaps the most famous example of this is the so-called silent twins, June and Jennifer Gibbons. Born in Barbados and raised in Wales in the 1970s, these children effectively communicated with only each other until the death of Jennifer at age 29. Retellings of this story often play up the eeriness of twins who refuse to speak to the outside world, when in reality, their silence was a rational choice. The nickname, The Silent Twins, has sinister overtones, but their story is not some freak show narrative. It's the story of two young black girls who were regularly bullied by their white classmates and neighbors and turned to the one person who understood them. And in response, society institutionalized them for over a decade. Many of us go through our lives wondering who we can and cannot trust. What makes twins different is that most of them don't have this dilemma. They are born with a confidant, someone who understands their exact perspective. It's not creepy or supernatural. What looks like ESP or telepathy is really just intimacy that goes beyond words. After all, if someone shared your life, maybe you'd know what they were thinking too. Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain.
Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Superstitions was written by Matthew Teamstra and Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petrus. I'm Alastair Murden. Hi listeners, it's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new True Crime Limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.